Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Film is Lit, the podcast where Danny and I compare and contrast a piece of literature with its film or TV adaptation. I'm Laura, she, her, the lit expert. And I'm Danny, he, him, the film expert. And today we're going to talk about postmodernism, antiheroes, and semiotics. Ever heard of her? Huh? <laughs> I don't know what you just said, but this is actually part two of now three of our coverage on the Watchmen TV show. We're so indulging ourselves. Orig- originally, we were just going to do the first five episodes as one podcast episode, and then the remaining four episodes as part two, but as we'll discuss today, episode six of this series is so is yeah and it was reflected last year when it won four emmys and the series itself just cleaned up but this episode especially is something special and as i said last episode my personal favorite episode in this series was episode five but i can't deny episode six titled this extraordinary being probably from an objective standpoint, is the most powerful, most artistic, objectively the best. Yeah, we watched this episode, and as soon as I turned it off, I was like, okay, here's the thing. I didn't take notes because I was so enthralled. Yeah. And immediately, right off the bat, I was like, this is my favorite episode, and it's also the definition of a post-postmodern piece of art. It is so tight with the writing. The script is incredible, except for one scene, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. It is so symbolic, and that's why I particularly wanted to revisit this. Again, as soon as we turned it off, I was like, all right, I'm watching this again before we record the podcast. Yeah. And then I almost immediately pitched Danny, I was like, we got to do another episode on this episode specifically. Yes. <laughs> because I also felt like last week we had a great discussion, but I felt like we had to rush through a lot of stuff. And I ended up missing some high points of my notes because there was just so much to talk about. And I just wanted to do this episode in particular, but this entire show justice. Hooded justice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think you can even tell, like, how excited I am to talk about it through my voice. Like, the second time we watched this episode, I took seven pages of notes. <laughs> and this episode is, what, 50 minutes? 53 yeah, minutes, about. something like that. Mm-hmm. And usually for an hour and a half movie, I have maybe two pages of notes. Like, yeah. that gives you... A perspective of how much there is to semiotically an- analyze and I also wanted to find that word because <laughs> I've used that approach to analysis in the past but I might not have ever explicitly said that's the way I analyze things so I just wanted to clarify that semiotics is the study of symbols in the written word but also specifically in visual mediums which obviously is very important to our podcast since we not only analyze literature, but also the silver screen. Yeah, I'm and glad. the bronze screen. Is that what you call television? Um, <laughs> no, but, no, yeah. Cut that out. 
No, I'm keeping it in. I edit these episodes. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared that up because I was pissed. No, I'm kidding. Um, you mentioned last week's episode. Yeah, you mentioned last week's episode, and I have something to say. Permission to approach the bench. I'll allow it. Sustained. <laughs> <laughs> Who am I in this judge, metaphor? Judge, and executioner. Yep, I'm Judge Dredd. Uh, shout out to the Carl Urban movie, Dredd. Anyways, I have only apologized for a podcast performance once before when we did our first episode on Heart of Darkness. So that was a three-part series. And in part two of that, I apologized for the previous week's performance on my end because we had so much to cover we rushed through it. And in all fairness, you had warned me about that when we did Apocalypse Now. You also warned me about it when we were doing Watchmen. So our previous episode, which we covered the first five parts of the show, that was probably a mistake on our parts because there's just so much to talk about. And I almost had like a slight panic attack or not a panic attack. I, I don't want to be insensitive to people who have panic attacks, but... I felt like I was rushing myself and instead of analyzing the material, I was just recapping it and it was cringy to, you did a great job and I'm not just saying that because, you know, you're sitting here and you're my co-host, but I think you did a great job picking the pieces, the kernels out there of analysis where when I was listening back to it, I don't think that uh, I brought my A game and now I think just doing one episode on episode six of this series i think this is the the right call interesting i bet you did better than you think i, I mean maybe i truth be told i think for amateurs i think we're pretty dang good on analyzing books and movies mm-hmm. but previous episode it was just five episodes is way too much to cover yeah. so yeah, that's... Uh, well, and it's honestly, we could do an episode about each episode. Yeah. This show, if you haven't watched it, you need to. I mean, yeah. when I say it's the perfect post-postmodern piece, I mean that this is the show of our time period. Yeah. Like, this is the show. Yeah. <laughs> this is the show. This episode in particular <laughs> is just an immaculately executed hour of television and one that transports the viewer into a terrifying past that's as you're saying yeah. all too similar to the present well, um, unfortunately i i completely agree i i've said this multiple times on this podcast but i love mad men because again it's a postmodern piece and i enjoy Postmodernism, which maybe I should define a little bit further. Basically, it's an approach to art where not only are you commenting and in a lot of ways satirizing archetypes that go back to like the Romans and the Greeks and other early civilizations, but you're also commenting on the recent past and how the constructed archetypes that have come to define gender and race are exactly that, they're constructed. They're not truths. They're just human ideas that have come to define things. And so with postmodernism, you discover those and then break them down and show that these things are very damaging. And again, they're not true. They're just human constructs. And so 
What Mad Men does so well is it analyzes the recent past, which would be sort of the 50s and the 60s, and how human constructs came to be so ubiquitous that they defined everything in American pop culture and how damaging that was to people's identity. Mm -hmm. And what this show does, which, and I mentioned Mad Men specifically because the last song or the second to last song in this episode is called Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, which I'll analyze a little bit later, but that's also the title of the first episode of Mad Men. And what this show does is it literally breaks apart not only the slightly recent past, which would be like the 1920s, but it also breaks apart Zack Snyder's movie yeah. <laughs> that was just made yeah. about the Watchmen book, which was also just ma- written in the right. 1980s. Right. So this show is so smart. It's post-postmodern. Incredible. I mean... I can't get over this episode. I'm just going to keep talking. Wow, so wow, wow. Incredible. Seasoned. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's get some technicals out of the way. This episode, titled This Extraordinary Being, directed by Stephen Williams and written by Damon Lindelof and Cord Jefferson. It won four Emmys for Outstanding Cinematography, Outstanding Sound Mixing, Outstanding Sound Editing, and Outstanding Writing. Interestingly enough, it did not win for Best Directing, which is crazy. I think, obviously, we're a little bit biased here because we love this series like more than most TV shows. However, again, art is subjective, but when it comes to directing, I think this is one of the best directed episodes of television next to like certain episodes of Mad Men, certain episodes of Breaking Bad. Um, certain episodes of Game of Thrones before season eight. <laughs> I think this is top tier of all time. What uh, one? Oh, yeah. This? So, yeah, it was a pretty stacked year. This episode was nominated for Best Directing, Stephen Williams, but also episode one and episode five, which we talked about, my, my favorite episode, those were also nominated of th- this show. And then it was up against Normal People little fires everywhere and the winner was an episode of unorthodox on oh, netflix which i hadn't seen the show but watchmen one of the episodes was expected to win everyone thought it was going to be this one but it actually was it went to unorthodox and an upset i watched this episode that won for best directing because i was just so curious and it's a great piece of television it's it's a piece of art and certainly deserved to be nominated but I think, I mean, Stephen Williams, the, the directing in this, just from a technical standpoint and an acting standpoint and how the story flows and the oh emotion you get and how it perfectly encapsulates transgenerational trauma. I mean, yes, I, I mean, yes. the, the whole episode is, you know, flashbacks, but it conveys what everyone in the story thought of the squid monster and how, yeah. you know, generational trauma is transferred through this constructed beast. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I agree. I the, have this in my notes. The timing of switching out yeah. William Reeves for Angela Avar is brilliant. Yeah, it's a... As soon as you start forgetting you're in a memory, they bring Angela back. Yeah, and they don't overdo it. Right. Nor do they uh, underdo it either. It's, it's perfect. It's perfect. So, yeah, and 
the base plot of this episode is, so at the end of episode five, Angela Abar chugs the bottle of nostalgia pills that her grandpa, Will Reeves, gave her. And nostalgia in this universe is a drug where it's literal memories that you... It's kind of like a pensive yeah. in Harry Potter, where you take the memory out, put it in a pill, and then when you pop the pill, you can relive that memory. Yeah, but you're only supposed to take your own memories. And you're uh, only supposed to take one at a time. Yes, <laughs> you're not supposed to ingest a whole bottle. So at the beginning of the episode... And they're illegal. Yeah, right, sort of yeah. super important. And produced by Lady True's company. Right true enterprises or whatever but yeah at the beginning of the episode Lori blake is like angela sign this release so we can pump your stomach or else you're going to start reliving all these memories and you're going to go to a coma and then the episode is her going into a coma reliving the backstory of will will reeves and just one more technical note the only flaw in this episode is the exposition when Lori explains how nostalgia works that is so heavy-handed right all of the information that she recaps was basically captured in the last episode and is also further explained in episode six so her monologue trying to get angela to sign the release so they can pump her stomach is totally unnecessary heavy-handed it's it's a bummer that there's just this total standstill in the movie for like it's like a two minute scene yeah and it just isn't necessary but that's the only flaw yeah i'm glad you brought that up because to be fair i derided Zack snyder's film for that heavy-handed exposition where characters go as you know and then explain what the character should know that's exactly what happens here it's one of the few missteps in the entire series where the dialogue is off even if it's for a moment no character should say as you know and then explain what they know. It brings the whole episode to a standstill. It's just a bummer, but moving past that. (laughs) Yeah, and I should say, Gene Smart, who plays Lori Blake, is only in this episode for two scenes, but she steals both scenes because she's just so sassy and and over it, and yeah, I I love her. When she's trying to get Angela to come out of her coma, she's like, Angela, you're on the floor on your back, and your eyes are open. It's kind of fucking creepy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she's she's great. Um, so and she's in a new show, right? She's in Hack. Yeah, I haven't Hacks. Seen it. Yeah, Hacks. Okay, yeah, I haven't seen it, but good for her for having this resurgence of a career. I mean, yeah, she's great. She's great. Yeah, was nominated for this show, uh, did not win, but yeah, basically full spoilers for this episode. It's about Will Reeves and the origin story of Hooded Justice, and normally origin stories. I mean the superhero movie genre is oversaturated with origin stories they're so cliched by this point james bond oh i wasn't even thinking of james bond but yeah that that absolutely they ruined his backstory i guess yeah hopefully that will be rectified in no time to die but yeah this is an origin story that is satisfying but also like the previous five episodes it brings in a good moral argument of the, the grayness of superheroes because there's nothing better than seeing Nazis and white supremacists get beaten up and k- killed on film. That's why Inglorious Bastards is one of the best films ever made. I mean, it's certainly my favorite Tarantino movie, but 
it is so cathartic and satisfying mm-hmm. to see Nazis getting what they deserve. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's that whole movement on Twitter, like punch a Nazi in the face. And I'm not endorsing violence, but. But those people aren't people. Anymore. Right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. This is the type of. They dehumanize non whites. And so we're allowed to dehumanize them a bit, I mean. Yes. Um, right. Exactly. And what Will is doing, it is justice in a sense. But for him, anger is stoking the fire. He's not doing this really out of a sense of justice. He's doing it out of vengeance. And that is something that has stayed with him. You know, it caused him to separate from his family. It caused his wife, June, to take his son and leave. And it even caused him... You know, it caused him to be alone his whole life. And even when he's killing Judd at the end of this episode, he only knows that Judd is part of Cyclops. And I'm not saying that he Judd didn't deserve to die, but you can tell that it's just, it's never ending for Will. Even at 106, he's still this man who has been psychologically tortured by this trauma. And this trauma is literally washing over to his you know, future generations and is affecting Angela. Just take the scene in episode two where she rides into Nixonville. She is so eager to beat the shit out of the Seventh Cavalry members. Like every racist remark, implication, or association um, in the present brings up the overt and protected racism of the past. You know, this this pain has been felt for generations. Yeah. And that's really what this episode is about, is about how the you know toxic, evil effects of racism bleed into the future. Well, and I really want to talk about a topic that, hey, I should preface this with like, you know, we're white, we don't have these racial experiences, but something that I've sort of been exposed to through, you know, the news and stuff, I just wanted to comment a little bit about Black American anger and how a lot of times Black American expression of anger is not accepted in society, whereas like white anger, and and specifically white male anger, is. And to offer an outlet for anger can be healthy, because it is healthy to get angry at things, but for that to be a protected white right, has created a culture of repression for Black Americans because the only way or one of the only ways to quote-unquote sort of make progress is through the quote-unquote right channels. And that's something that's discussed in this episode because when Will Reeves as a child sees the Black sheriff of Oklahoma defeat a white sheriff who's stealing cattle from the town, he grows up believing that he can fight racism through the police department. However, we find out very early in this nostalgia flashback that even the people who are on the police force with him are so racist that they basically lynch him. And the only reason they don't kill him is to keep this power hanging over him to show like, hey, you th- you might think you've made it, but you haven't. We still have a heel over you. We still have our thumb over you. And so the point where Will turns 
and decides to put the hood on is when he realizes that he can't get that justice yeah. through the right process or through the, excuse me, through the right avenues or whatever. And the thing that's even more troubling is that after the first encounter he has with the muggers who are trying to beat up and probably rape or steal this couple's money, he goes so far as to sort of use white face on his eyes under his mask to, again, be accepted as a white vigilante because there is no outlet for his anger because he's a black man. And if someone even saw, you know, the corners of his eyes or his hands, because he also ends up wearing gloves, he would be treated differently than a white person behind a mask who's exacting vigilante justice. For example, Captain Metropolis. Yeah. So that is so sad. And that also just, it literally you visually see that repression that has to happen for him to be able to express his anger against the justice system and just the societal systems in America. I mean, yeah, yeah, the show, I mean, it came from American public and the police force is going to allow this vigilante to roam the streets. Everyone needs to think it's a white man. And this comes to the biggest uh, difference between the source material and the show is that this character, Hooded Justice, the first superhero ever in this universe, he was written to be a white man. And the identity in this universe was never confirmed. But it's hinted at that it's a circus strongman named Rolf Mueller, uh, you know, a, a, a circus a German circus performer and it's never confirmed and fun fact this masked vigilante is the only hero who retired with this true identity not revealed uh, mm-hmm. by the end of the comic so it's not really a change but it's something that it, Lindelof came into the show with a mission statement to make Hooded Justice uh, black and this is the perfect way to do that because as this superhero's identity was never revealed it, of course, could have been a black man. And that was kind of the whole... The time period... Yeah, exactly. ...have barred a black American to engage in this kind of behavior. Yeah. And not only that, but again, going back to semiotics, the brilliance and honestly the coincidence of hooded justice being the hooded hero that uses a noose yeah. and uses that as a symbol around his neck is chilling. That is that is a coincidence that right. he's the hooded he's the only hooded hero who we don't officially know his identity yeah. but also he's wearing a noose and that is explicitly stated in the American hero story spoof that exists in this universe of basically Zack Snyder's yeah show or Zack Snyder's movie Mm -hmm. where these two New York tough cops are interrogating justice or FBI right or it was Hoover FBI or CIA FBI FBI yeah so they're interrogating hooded justice and I think see this is brilliant because if you're familiar with the graphic novel you know that he died without revealing his true identity And the way that the show cast a white person to play 
the character of Hooded Justice in the show shows that people still actually don't know who yeah. Hooded Justice was. Yeah, it shows how wrong the American public got the history yeah. down. It also shows how whitewashed. I mean, that's a pretty exactly. literal representation of, of whitewashing. And that opening scene, hilarious it, of how over the top it is. It's yeah. satirizing Snyder's movie as episodes earlier, you know, that dramatization of Hooded Justice barging into the grocery store, which we see the real events later on in the episode. But yeah, it's also a spoof of Ryan Murphy's um, American Horror Story. Oh, yeah. Yours, because the show's called American Hero Story. Yeah, um, post-postmodernism. Right. And, Hello again. And that spoof and that metaphor is even deepened because the actor who plays Hooded Justice in that spoof, his name is Cheyenne Jackson, and he's a regular of Ryan Murphy's uh, TV <laughs> projects. So smart. Yeah, so it, it's a two-handed metaphor. I, I think it more overtly references American Horror Story, but you cannot deny how the violence and style of that fake show yeah. resembles Snyder's movies exactly. Well, and the, the other funny thing about his portrayal of Hooded Justice is his voice, because it's very Rorschach, yeah. and it's also very Batman. Yep. Like, very Batman. And so I also wanted to go back to the symbol of the noose, because I kind of lost my train of thought earlier, but they, they call out that he wears a noose around his neck. Yeah. And that's literally a hint to the audience. Pay attention to this symbol because, you know, especially a white audience where we might not necessarily immediately go to lynching because that's not our generational history. Right. What we think of is like, oh, the bad guys get hanged, right? Yeah, By right. going through the proper system of justice. But... To a black audience, that's going to symbolize something very different. Yeah. And they even poke fun at it. They they call him, uh, well, they they sort of make these jokes about how it's related to quote-unquote sex stuff. And they <laughs> call him a depraved homosexual. They say, just the way you like it, sweetheart. They say, ain't you pretty? They say, big cockalus. Like... Mm. They're, they sort of try to draw that attention away and they're misanalyzing what that symbol means because they're white. And because they're white, they're using it in this hateful way to project homosexuality on someone rather than correctly interpreting it because they don't know he's a black American who's literally been lynched as a symbol of violence against black bodies. Right, and Will Reeves is looking for a new system of justice because the police force he's on is clearly not the right system to deliver that justice. But even when he becomes a hero and joins the Minutemen, Captain Metropolis point blank says to him that we're going to help out with your problem yep. in the city, in New York. It's in, in 1938. You're saying, we're going to help out with this problem. That was his opening pitch to him. Right. He says, why work alone when you can work with a team? Will Reeves thinks that since he's created this new system and joined this team, now this is when justice will be delivered. But even that, even a fictional Justice League is not enough to get what Will wants, is not enough to deliver equality. So that organically leads to the end of the episode where Reeves goes on that all-out assault 
on Fred's meatpacking industry because there's there's nothing left. This is the if he wants to destroy Cyclops, right. this is literally his only option which on its face you know murder a full-on massacre like that seems brutal but what the show is illustrating is that even superheroes can't fix this and they won't well so yeah a couple of things about that so number one it really seamlessly segues into my next point about the police as a symbol and that includes cop cars uniforms badges ceremonies like the ceremony when will reeves gets his badge right and the white officer passes him by and the black officer has to come and put the badge on his uniform yeah and just to quickly interrupt that's a great technical moment in the episode when as soon as angela starts to feel the effects of the drugs Director Stephen Williams uses a simple sweeping camera movement, mm. and in one smooth roaming motion, the camera moves from Angela sitting down in her cell to her sitting down on a stage with mm-hmm. the rest of the 1938 cadet class yeah. and that captain giving the speech. I think it's just a perfect transition yeah. in a show filled with perfect transitions. Yeah. That is probably yeah. the best. It sets the stage for all the... Well, and also the way that they transition between what's color and what's in black and white, which is very reminiscent of Schindler's List. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Oh, there's even that throughout the episode, his mother playing the piano is in full color. Yeah. Right. You know, mirroring Schindler's List. And in this universe, as we learn in episode five, Steven Spielberg didn't make Schindler's List. He made Pale Horse, which was his, you know, version, his movie version of the attack on New York in 1985. So, yeah, yeah, the symbolism... to reference that, it's even red that's highlighted. Yeah. We see red pop up all the time, which is exactly the symbolism that Spielberg calls out in Schindler's List with the little girl's red jacket. But So the other thing, so I I was going to highlight the police as a symbol of violence against black bodies. But I also wanted to call out the fact that we talked about how William Reeves thinks he's finally joined this Justice League that's going to work outside of the system, but alongside of the system. Yeah. However, what happens is that he also experiences gaslighting and racism within that group. And so what he does is almost become like a double vigilante and goes outside of that group. But the problem with that is that when he targets specific people that are part of the system, he's also not able to dismantle the system that's causing this racism. He's able to kill individuals, but he's not necessarily able to get his hands on someone like Hoover, who was creating this system of racism that has permeated through today. And then, of course, the problem with that, while it's justified, because of course we're on Will Reeves' side, especially when we see him kill Fred, the yeah. market owner who's just blatantly racist to him. Yeah. Um, calls him boy. I mean, the language in this is so intentionally racist. Oh my God, the the way he makes that insinuation about how Will Reeves' penis must be larger because he's black. Like, all of those things are very intentionally racist to like, you know, get you on Will Reeves' side. Like, of course this guy deserves to die. But the problem is that if anyone found out that Will Reeves had caused those people's deaths, he would be individually targeted back rather than these two 
groups of people who could work together to dismantle a racist system. Mm-hmm. I think that is where they're suggesting in the show that individual vendettas are not going to work. As long as yeah. people are working against each other and not seeing the bigger picture, we're not going to be able to address the problems that are actually causing these things. Individual racism causes violence, but to target those people like we see Angela doing is is not ultimately going to help. It's not going to change anything because you have to dismantle the system as a whole. Correct, yeah, which one man cannot do, no matter how many resources he has, no matter how strong he is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of represented in, in the comic, too. The Rorschach and Night Owl kind of team up to try to stop this vast conspiracy and they fail and adrian veidt only succeeds because he completely uproots the entire world he doesn't he doesn't create a new system as much as he sets off a nuclear bomb equivalent monster mm-hmm. and just you know starts over that's really kind of the it's a haunting thought experiment to mm-hmm. think that you cannot that we're in such a place where you cannot create a new system you need to start anew that's yeah scary to yeah. say the least but you're talking about anti-heroes i know you wanted to get into that i do want to get into All that right, so let's get into it's, it okay so the other reason i wanted to talk about postmodernism is because it's an art movement that came after the american disillusionment in the government after Watergate, after Vietnam, and where something, American... Something that the people in this universe did not go through because we won Vietnam and right. Nixon did not resign. True. Thank you for inserting that. So where American television plugged into the contemporary psyche of the 50s and 60s, they were plugging into this feeling of, you know, the American dream, um, you know, American, America as a superpower in the world following World War II and World War One, And that kind of hero that actually, again, as a symbol is referenced in the show by the conversation about Superman in the first action comic. Yeah that came out in 1938. Mm -hmm. That kind of superhero that plugs into that American psyche of good and evil being black and white and there being no gray area, which obviously the graphic novel wants to completely blow up. Right. The reason... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what Rorschach believes Exactly. Yeah. The reason antiheroes emerged from sort of the vestige of this broken American identity following things like Watergate and Vietnam and Korea, the Korean War and atrocities that were happening in other countries that America was then exposed to after the explosion of television and media and all these things, that Superman identity didn't fit the American psyche anymore. Yeah. And so we see the emergence of antiheroes, which are much more gray and much more sort of have have that mindset of the individualistic motives mm-hmm. where they may be working alongside the government or you know the police department but they have their own sort of moral code that they work on and a really good sort of transitional character to cite is like dirty harry 
Yeah. Because he's working with the San Francisco Police Department, but he has a personal vengeance that means that he will kill as many people as possible to get to the one person who's causing violence in the city. Yeah. Or it's like Liam... in the city. Yeah. Or like Liam Neeson in Taken. You know, he's fighting against... He's fighting to get his daughter back and just wrecking havoc across France. Yeah, and the brilliance in this show, again, I want to actually cite the music because what's played over the flashbacks or the memories in nostalgia are songs that are very reminiscent of that 1930s, everything is fine, and and late 40s, everything yeah. is fine, America is a superpower, you know, uh, we've addressed racism because we abolished slavery, yeah. you know. Um, that mindset is drawn attention to, and as well as the other thing that I think is so brilliant about making the memories in black and white is that it really heavily references shows like Dragnet and Perry Mason, which mm. are in black and white. Yeah. And they reference this sort of black and white good detective or lawyer who's always seeking justice and always wins at the end of an episode and that doesn't work for this black american exactly so it's basically sort of packaging it's showing you the underside of what this double society means to people who are on the bottom rather than on the top which is obviously historically white people so like that music packages this wonderful American society that worked for one group, but by juxtaposing it with the lynching that happens and the racist comments and the physical violence that Will Reeves receives or experiences, we see that we do need to go back to these historical events and pay more attention to things like the 1921 Tulsa massacre, because what white people say or what the victors say is not necessarily the thing to focus on. Right, and that paints a great picture of the universe that the Watchmen graphic novel and the show are in. The American public in this universe is much more patriotic and nationalist because Mm -hmm. they've grown up with superheroes winning, or they've been presented that narrative. So that's why they have shows like American Hero Story that are just basically patriotic Zack Snyder films and the hardships and the prejudices that minorities not you know not just black americans but minorities in general endure are much more extreme because they have the organization like the 7th Cavalry in this because the 7th Cavalry has been allowed to form in this universe because everyone everyone is on more or less the side of the hero and the cops where in in reality now especially nowadays we're more movies are more focused on like you're saying the anti-hero and kind of searching for that justice i mean we we have a long ways to go before we reach equality in america but the universe is much more patriotic uh in, in watchmen yes and I really like that you talked about the 7th Calvary. I really want to draw a very clear connection between the 7th Calvary and the Cyclops organization. Right. Because what's happening with this show, and I don't know if this was necessarily subconscious. I would say it almost, I would like to have a discussion with the showrunners and the writers because especially within this episode, the coding 
that they insert through symbolism exposes how different kinds of people in America, different groups of people in America, are able to communicate through codes that mm-hmm. are not, well, sometimes they're linguistic, but a lot of times they're not linguistic. Yeah. And the way that those codes work for different people, and by the way, if anyone's interested in looking further into this, NPR has an incredible podcast called Code Switch. Love NPR. That I highly recommend people listen to. Big fans of NPR in this <laughs> yeah. household. <laughs> yeah. I think I listen to every NPR podcast out there. But anyway, what they're doing is exposing the kind of symbols and linguistics that people are able to use to send messages to groups of people. And there are layers. I mean, honestly, again, another thing that you can look into is semiotics. The study of symbols is just incredibly interesting. But specifically, the coding of non-white Americans versus white Americans. And also, another thing they pack into this episode is the coding of queer communities versus mm. straight communities. Yeah. Like the first time that I saw the little hand touch touch between Captain Metropolis and Hooded Justice, you signal, there's a signal that they're not straight. Yeah. So the coding of this in, this episode in particular is Massive. I literally have the five out of seven pages of notes or whatever I took are about coding. So, for example, I picked out the noose. I picked out the way that they talk about symbols. For example, Will's wife, June, says they gave you a gun and a stick in response to him defending his belief in the police system. Yeah. that's Those are symbols. The conversation after... The ceremony where he becomes a police officer, it takes place in a safe environment for black people in that time. It's a bar that's clearly open to black clientele, which is very reminiscent of the movies that came out One Night in Miami and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Again, safe spaces for black Americans to have open conversations rather than coded conversations. The fire in the deli, Obviously, a delicatessen is code for a Jewish safe space. Yeah. Um, the American flag is a symbol and a code. Uh, I'm literally like losing uh, projectors, projecting messages on a wall, projecting messages on other people, projecting identities on other people by yeah. using codes to either hide or misrepresent your identity. I mean, these things are so layered and so this is this is such an incredible example of using semiotics to get people to question why they look at something and get a communication or a meaning out of it. It's just mind-boggling. Like they, this had to be on the top of their minds. This could not have been a subconscious decision to pack all this stuff in there. Yeah. And the Cyclops, I was gonna go back to the Cyclops again too, because so this is I think one of the most telling symbols there is. So the Cyclops sign is basically this white supremacist code where they hold up sort of a like an okay symbol with their hand and put it up to their forehead. Like they're making a single eye in the middle of their forehead. And 
I have this really cool dictionary of symbols that was compiled by Penguin reference department, I guess. It's <laughs> incredible. I love it. It was compiled by Jean Chevalier, Chevalier and Elaine Garbrandt. I hope I'm pronouncing their names correctly. <laughs> but if anyone's interested in semiotics, it's basically a dictionary of symbolism. And I looked up Cyclops because I was interested outside of the image related to the Odyssey and Polyphemus and all that stuff. If you're familiar with the Odyssey, that'll, you know. Read in whatever. high school. <laughs> sure, yeah. So anyway, outside of the Cyclops, I wanted to know if there was a deeper meaning. And Cyclops imagery is fairly prominent between like Celtic cultures and Greek cultures and Roman cultures. But the layering of this symbol I think is really interesting because if a white, again, to take this episode in particular and break it down, the white people sort of make a safe space for the clan to meet in their spaces. Mm -hmm. They see that as almost a Rorschach symbol where there's this single eye that's kind of like an all seeing eye. And that kind of goes back to like Illuminati, you know, yeah. conspiracy theories and all this stuff is all seeing eye and like. And if you remember, the squid had an eye right in the middle of its. Yeah. You're brilliant. I didn't even remember that. But yeah, this sort of psychic, all seeing, but very brutal symbol because what they're seeing in society is that something is wrong and they need to like cleanse society of this stain, right, on American society. Yeah. However, if you look at other cultures understanding of the cyclops it's related to like a volcano meaning like a sudden eruption of violence interesting and which is what they are trying to create with their projector mesmerism sure yeah and yeah. if you know another kind of group meaning again going back to this episode non-whites and specifically black people what that's gonna mean if you see a code that means a sudden eruption of violence you're going to think that that's going to be pointed at you. And in fact, it is. Yeah. Right? The Like you were saying, the projections are literally engineered to create violence within this group so that the white people can point their fingers and say, they're animals. And they're the ones. We can use violence against them because they are less than human. In fact, when Will shows up to the theater tragedy later in Harlem, a white officer says to him, this is what happens when you put a bunch of animals in the same cage. Yeah. Like, so what I, again, what I'm saying with the Cyclops is that this white nationalist group is coding this meaning into this little hand signal and they're using it as a rallying cry around a group that they think is out of control and they've dehumanized to the point where they can use violence against them to control them. Yeah. However, the group that's being beaten and abused is going to see that and understand something entirely different. Something, right. again, that Will thinks needs to be rectified with his own anger and his own vigilantism. Yes. Which, again, like, it's... We understand where Will is coming from. It's just not the root of the problem. Yeah, exactly. That's a long rant. No, I just wanted to mention that the chief officer of the original Ku Klux Klan was called the Grand Cyclops uh, in real life. Ah, 
in, yes. in real life. So Cyclops is an actual thing that yes. um, exists. And I don't know if you remember at the end of episode five when Looking Glass infiltrates, or I guess he walks into the trap that the Seventh Calvary set for him. Similar to how Will Reeves walks into that exactly. projector yeah. Yeah. situation. There's a big Cyclops eye there as that. well, which could double as the eye of the squid, which I guess it does, but it also represents their ties to Cyclops. Right, and so. again, that that just goes to show like these people are using symbols that they don't even really understand how violent those things, just a symbol, can be to non-white groups. Yeah, it's... And I mean, honestly, again, Blue Lives Matter is a symbol that literally the Black Lives Matter symbol signals to everyone else that you are supporting violence against black bodies. And that's something that these people who use that symbol, they're saying, no, no, we, we, they're, they completely deny yeah. the links with the violence against black bodies reality that they don't have to deal with. They don't have to deal with that trauma. And so right. they're able to see that and they what they think they're projecting is I'm supporting this group. I'm not not supporting that group. I'm just saying these people need to be protected. But again, going back to that systemic issue, it's like, okay, maybe police can do good things, but that's not what it's signaling to people who are being murdered by this group. You're signaling that you're racist. Yes. Mm -hmm. End of rant. Right. <laughs> the yeah. show's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, nothing more I can really add, but I think the show is very prophetic in that sense because I'm watching the documentary on QAnon currently that's on oh, um, yeah. HBO Max currently, and they uh, do the same thing where they communicate in code on 8chan, which I believe is called 8kun. They had to change because the original creator of 8chan wanted them to change the name. But yeah, I mean, as a signal, that's a racial slur. Right. So it's just interesting to hear that. But yeah, Pawn they him. right they use code to communicate their right. views, and there's a big debate on how much you can limit free speech. Well, in America, you can't, but the First Amendment does not protect you from inciting violence. So that that's the big right. catch twenty two of like, can we? destroy the system 8chan and QAnon using the system that's in place <laughs> right yeah it's kind of impossible because yeah and I'm not saying that the first amendment needs to be amended I'm just saying that it's hard to destroy code when mm -hmm. when you have people who are hiding justifying the code. yes and of course you literally know literally and metaphorically because they're hiding behind their computers yeah yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Let's get back to the show. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to close on a couple details. The title of the episode, mm. This Extraordinary Being, derives its name from an excerpt of Hollis Mason's autobiography from the Watchmen comic. So Hollis Mason was the original Sorry. Night Owl, mm -hmm. and in the universe he wrote this book called Under the Hood, an autobiography and also a biography of the Minutemen. And at the end of the Watchmen number one, Hollis describes Hooded Justice's fight in the grocery store as, quote, this extraordinary being had crashed 
in through the window of the supermarket while the robbery was in progress. So mm -hmm. this is even referenced in episode two mm -hmm. in the show within a show, American Hero Story, which shows this white hooded justice bursting through and thwarting the criminals and, you know, bashing their heads against the register and blood everywhere and like, look, he saved the day, yay. But what the show is illustrating is like, oh, the real event was a black hooded justice bursting through a Ku Klux Klan den, mm -hmm. bursting through their warehouse into a grocery store run by a Cyclops member, and then him with a rifle. Yeah, with a rifle He's and attacking him. Yeah, and he doesn't burst through the window to to stop the criminals. He bursts out of the window to escape because mm -hmm. there's no one there to help him. Yeah. The Minutemen aren't coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, another incredibly racist and incredibly written line is when Will is standing outside of the Cyclops projector programming warehouse. Yeah. He calls Captain Metropolis and says, get down here. I need backup. And Captain Metropolis goes, looks like you're going to have to solve black... Unrest. Unrest by yourself. And then basically Will hangs up because he's just like, fuck you. Yeah. Like, and that line, that is so symbolic of what white Americans put on black American troubles. Is like, well, you're lazy. You don't want to get a job. So you're going to have to figure that out all on your own. It's not the system's fault. Mm -hmm. You figure it out on your own because it's your kind of people. And Fred uses that language too, right outside of the phone booth. He right. says, your kind of people. Yes. And I think Captain Metropolis says that too, your kind of people. So like, you know, you're part of that group. You take care of it. We want nothing to do with it. Well, then Will uncovers that it's the white people who are programming a psychological response mm -hmm. in the projectors to make the black Americans act that way. So it's just this like yep. nasty cycle. Yeah. So fun fact, the young Will Reeves, who plays the, you know, the rookie police officer, that actor is Joven Adepo. He was nominated for an Emmy just for this episode. Really? And he he lost out to another actor from this show, oh, which yeah. I won't bring up at this moment. But yeah, the fun fact is he also had a regular role in The Leftovers, seasons two and three, which David Lindelof also show ran and wrote for that oh, cool. show. And uh, he portrayed this character, Michael Murphy, a son of Erica Murphy, who is played by Regina King. So that's Very kind cool. of a cool, yeah. So Lindelof likes to work with the same people uh, frequently, and Very yeah, cool. it, it, it pays off. This is just an incredible episode that is not... To, I mean, it certainly created quite the discourse between both of us. And, and we're two white people. Again, we want to mention that. Well, there's probably stuff that we're missing out on, too, because we're not part of the community that's being subjugated. Yes, yeah. That, that's what I'm trying to say, is and that we are not... Yeah. yeah. This is just an impeccable episode of television that is as socially relevant today as it was two years ago. I, so I guess like my final thought was to analyze the use of smoke gets in your eyes at the very end because what the song is about, are you ready to wrap up? Yeah. Are you, okay. The song on its face 
is about someone who falls in love and their lover leaves them. And the line, smoke gets in your eyes, is sort of referencing the phrase, you know, smoke screened or the wool got pulled over your eyes. You know, you were in love, so you missed the reality of the fact that your partner wasn't really in love with you, right? Mm -hmm. But the brilliance of using it as the title to the first Mad Men episode, as well as the end of this episode, is that what I take that to mean as well is that if you're in the room with someone smoking, you're not going to avoid the carcinogens (laughs) that are getting in your lungs and the smoke that's getting in your eyes, right? And so I also think that what it signals is that if you're in the room where vigilantism is taking place and violence is taking place, even if against even if it's against people who deserve it, you're not escaping the violence that you're causing. And you're not fixing anything, you know, kind of to use Lin-Manuel Miranda's language, you're in the room where it happens. And so you're not escaping guilt, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I take it. And that's kind of how I think, again, it sort of tees off Mad Men because all these people are, you know, they're claiming that they're wonderful contributing members to American society where really all they're doing is like subjugating other people around them. Yeah. That's kind of how I take that, the use of that song. It kind of like symbolizes and signals things to people. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. No, not at all. That's what I think it means. (sighs) Yeah. That's brilliant. All right. We should wrap up. Cool. Sorry for yelling a lot. Yeah. Certainly. I'm like passionately... (laughs) I passionately love this episode. I think it's maybe, I mean, it's in my top favorite episodes of television of all time. Yeah. If not like number two, because there's like one episode of Mad Men where it's like, that's like my number one favorite of yeah. all time. And there's a couple Parks and Rec episodes that are yeah. <laughs> thrown into that top five too. But this took out everything else. In terms of limited series, this is probably the top. But I, I think if we're doing all time, a couple episodes of Breaking Bad probably are, are at the I top seen that for me. So, so I, yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure it's good. Yeah, no, love that you're passionate. I mean, I'm certainly passionate as well. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what great art does. It starts a conversation whilst entertaining you at the same time. So that's exactly what the show is. Uh, yep. Politically relevant, but eternally fun it's pretty entertaining to watch white supremacists be kicked and beaten oh yeah (laughs) as we said earlier that's why and i'm not above that i'm not above yep that's why (laughs) inglorious bastards is the best all right well we'll see you next week when we cover episodes seven through nine we're gonna have a special guest on one of my college buddies cannot wait for that and yeah please rate and review subscribe if you haven't already and we'll see you on the next one.